From Boise, Idaho and Idaho Education News, this is Extra Credit, your weekly podcast looking at education policy and education politics. I'm Kevin Richard. And I'm Clark Corbin. Let's jump right in. We got a lot to get to. Uh, another hugely busy midsummer week. Um, you know, really, really crazy stuff by, uh, by summer in education standards. Uh, Let's start with the news that broke uh, this week and the ongoing saga on the Charter School Commission. Yeah, let's start right with our top story, Kevin. You obtained some documents uh, from the Attorney General's office, the Office of Attorney General Lawrence Wasden, pertaining to this ongoing issue we've we've been talking about, the long-winded executive session from the Idaho Charter School Commission. This week, the AG's office weighed in, and you got the documents. Strong response from the Attorney General. What did you find out? What does it say? Very strong response. And you can read the documents. We've got links to both uh, the full report and the letter that they sent out on Thursday. You can go to my story at idahoednews.org and see it for yourself. But I was struck by how strong this response really was from the AG's office. Now, let's be careful about the wording that the AG's office uses. Because uh, they were careful. They were careful. They're, they're, they're lawyers. They're careful about words. So we're careful about the words lawyers use. They did not say in so many words that the Charter Commission broke the state open meeting law. That's really not what they do in a report. So it's not really significant that they didn't go that far. That's just not what they do. But what they did in this case was said that they believe that there is probable cause to take a case against the Charter Commission alleging that they, they violated the Open Meetings Law. And what I, what I was struck by in the report, and I, and I tweeted this out on Thursday, was that there were so many places where yeah. the AG's office felt like the Charter Commission violated the Open Meeting Law. So we have this two-hour executive session going back to April. The devil's playground. And it, yes, that's what Brad Little said about it a couple of weeks ago. And that really bears out. Oh, yeah. In the Attorney General's report, uh, they talk about how this meeting quickly started to meander and drift away from its intended purpose of talking about student data. I really keyed in on that section, the drifting away from the student data to talking about things that could have or should have been discussed in open meeting, right? Yeah, how, how would you float the idea of not renewing a charter? How would you convince legislators that that's an appropriate and necessary step. I mean, that's talking about politics. That's talking about the specter of maybe closing a charter school or not renewing a charter and how you how you explain that position politically. They talked about the performance of charter school administrators. Now, that is something that technically the Charter Commission can talk about behind closed doors. That's a personnel matter. But they didn't even t- mention the possibility of talking about personnel issues in the agenda, the agenda which is that key. they posted. The and legal that's notice. important, too. Yep. The agenda that an agency uses before they go into an executive session should give you an idea of what they're going to talk about in an executive session. So they couldn't talk about personnel matters because they didn't say that they were going to talk about personnel matters. And I think we both keyed on in on this. What I thought maybe was one of the most damning things in the report from the AG's office was that a deputy attorney general was really harshly criticized yeah. in-house in this report. Um, basically, the report says that there was a deputy attorney general in present the room. for the meeting, which is standard procedure. Every state agency has a deputy attorney general assigned uh, to work with them. 
the, the deputy AG was in that meeting and never really stopped the proceedings as they went off the rails. Never really said, hey, we don't, we're not going to do that. We're, you're, you're getting off the track of what you should be talking about in, an, in this executive session. So not only did the AG's office criticize the commission, uh, they criticized their own department, one of their own, for not going far enough to, to police the proceedings of an executive session. And what the report said is, when you're behind closed doors, it really is important to self-police, that it really is incumbent upon the people in the meeting to make sure that the meeting stays, you know, stays well, above board. And that's a super important point, Kevin, because the only reason why we know what happened behind closed doors and what the conversation was, was because the Charter Commission itself recorded that conversation and then inadvertently released it to the public as part of a public records request. And so it raises all kinds of questions about how often does this happen with this body or with other governing bodies and panels across the state because we don't know what we don't know. And to think that a deputy attorney general was in the room uh, just raises a lot of questions. But how often does this happen, not only with this body, this charter commission, but school boards, city councils, planning commissions, you name your governing body all over the state because we just, we don't know what we don't know. And mm -hmm. I think this is a unique circumstances because of the recording, but Oh, man. And, and I really go back to what the governor said about the long executive session being the devil's playground and about what the attorney general's office, I think it was Deputy AG Brian Kane who wrote the report, but talking about the conversation drifting. And I, I mean, boy, howdy, um, this is really eye-opening, and, and, and it's and, a serious thing. And if you wonder why we harp on openness in government and why we are so so much sticklers about making sure that the government performs its functions in open session, that, that you you and I all have a, an opportunity to see what a government agency is up to. If you wonder why we obsess about this stuff, this is why. Oh, yeah. This really opened the curtain to one executive session that really went astray. Let's talk a little bit about some of the reactions to this, yeah, because I, th yeah. I thought the reactions to the report were also Kind of where things stand for the Charter Commission and what could happen next. And we already got, right off the response, you got a response uh, from Alan Reed, the chairman of the Charter Commission, right? Yeah, a statement. Yeah, so the, the, the response and the timing I thought were both really, really interesting. So I got the reports and I, I posted a story as quickly as possible to get the story published. And... In the time that it took me to do that and to start to write a letter to the State Board yeah. of Education saying, uh, an email to the State Board saying, I need a comment, I need a response. In that time, I already got a response back from the State Board of Education. Uh, the spokesman, Mike Keckler, said, hey, I see you posted about the uh, report. Here's our response. And Alan Reed, the chair of the, the Charter Commission, fell on his sword and said, we agree that mistakes were made. We're going to have a meeting to discuss you know, how we go forward, and that will be a public meeting. And that was that, that alludes to some of what the Attorney General's office said the Charter Commission should do in, in terms of the corrective actions. The corrective actions. Because they have 60 days, right? They And this happens with public agencies on, on one of these uh, open meetings violations. Uh, the agency is given an opportunity to, to cure the violation. And in this case, what the Attorney General's office is recommending is, is three things. 
uh, first of all, you don't act on anything you talked about in this meeting. That's Second, essentially null and void. Do-over is coming. Right, right. No, nothing that you said, nothing that you discussed in April you can act on. Second, you have to publicly acknowledge that you, you violated the law, and pretty much that's what Alan Reed did uh, almost instantaneously on Thursday. And then you hold a, a training session open to the public, open to the media, uh, to talk about uh, compliance with the open meetings law. And that sounds like what the commission is going to do. So this may never get to the point of the AG's office filing an actual complaint against the Charter Commission. Sure, sure. And these things tend not to do that. But in the big picture, this is another rebuke of the Charter Commission, which has had a really difficult couple of weeks. I mean, you know, and still is facing fire. There's trust from, issues. There's credibility issues. Right. And they're, and they're still facing fire from, from charter advocates. I mean, you have Heritage Academy, which is a school that's right in the center of this controversy. Heritage Academy wants to get out from under the, the Charter Commission's umbrella. They're, they're right now they're authorized. They're over, you know, they're under the oversight of the, the Charter Commission. They want out. They want the Jerome School District to take over jurisdiction. We'll see if that happens. Uh, one charter group is saying that they want the entire Charter Commission disbanded. Uh, you know, the, the, the commissioners resign, the staff resign, and the state starts over with a new third party. That kind of got a lukewarm response from House Speaker Scott Bedke. Um, he's not sure. He said he's not sure that that's the way people are going to want to go. And at the same time, you've got other charter school advocates saying, "We want the commission to stay in place. Right. The commission is doing good right. work in their view, mm. and we do need uh, you know, an oversight agency that, that holds charter schools accountable, that holds taxpayer dollars, uh, that protects taxpayer dollars." So you even got a little bit of a split within the charter community about how to proceed next. Do you get rid of the commission entirely? Do you move on from this um, this open meetings violation? A lot, a lot still to see about how this thing is going to play out. It, it really does go beyond the open meetings violation, which in and of itself is important. Yeah, it is. It's going to be interesting to see where this goes next, what's next for the Charter Commission beyond the immediate. It does appear they will take actions to self-cure the violation, but where does this go next? What does this mean for the future of the Charter Commission? What does this mean about unity and the ability of these groups to work together with the Commission? Um, what happens with heritage? I, so I think there's a lot to, to follow up on and a lot to watch. And first of all, the immediate response and, and whether they take up the open meeting training. Uh, but then kind of how do these groups go forward? Can they work together? Can they resolve this? Um, sort of what happens next and, and where do we go? Because the role of the Charter Commission is, is obviously they authorize, what is it, about two-thirds of Idaho's charter three schools? Three-fourths. three-fourths of the state's 56 charter schools are under the commission's umbrella. And then so when all those schools come up for reauthorization, the, the reauthorization, the charters go back before the commission. Um, traditionally, uh, members had been appointed by the governor and House and Senate leadership. That's the structure now. Um, you, like you said, our friends at the Twin Falls Times News covered a meeting with Republican leadership. It seemed like House Speaker Scott Bedke, as you said, wasn't ready to call for wholesale, wholesale changes or said that that may not be what everyone wants right now. But, but I don't all, think we've heard also, the last. But he also said that there are trust issues yeah. right now oh, yeah. between the Commission and Heritage Academy. And, and he suggested, you know, maybe that is a school that needs to be moved out from under the Commission. Maybe it makes more sense to have the Jerome School District take over. 
There's a lot we need to watch on this issue, and, and that's not even the only charter issue that broke this week. Um, quickly, uh, you can see all the details at idahoednews.org, but our Devin Bodkin, following the ongoing saga of uh, charter schools in the Blackfoot area, a dispute festering, continuing between Bingham Academy and the city of Blackfoot over uh, permitting uh, of Bingham Academy's facility, uh, oh, this the, is getting the, the, serious yeah, with about it, a month it, ago it, before school would start. Right. I mean, the, the academy is saying that uh, they don't feel like they need to apply for a conditional use permit from the city uh, to operate in their facility. The city is saying, well, actually, we think you do. I think the and city planner wrote a letter saying to stop using the facility immediately. Yeah, a month before the school year. And that, that raises a whole lot of questions about what happens with this school when the school year starts. What does the state do in terms of funding a school that, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens come opening day. So that's, a, you know, that's another issue that we'll be watching very closely in, in the weeks to come. Very fluid issue. Uh, Devin's been following these, uh, these developments in Blackwood very, very closely, very carefully. He'll keep us posted on the latest. And I mean, this is affecting the community. There's a month to go before school starts. There's a lot of strong feelings. And I think there's a lot of uncertainty right now about the future of the school and what happens to those students. Devin did check in uh, with leadership from the Blackfoot School District, who said they would be more than prepared uh, and willing and able to absorb the Bingham students, should it come to that. But this is really, I don't know that tearing the community apart, but almost. People feel strongly, and there's a lot of uncertainty. And like we said, we're a month away from the scheduled start of the school year Really a lot of uncertainty about what happens next for Bingham. And, and bad blood right now between oh, yeah. the city of Blackfoot and Bingham Academy leaders. A tort claim has been threatened, yeah, I, um, I, which is essentially a lawsuit. Which is a precursor to filing a civil lawsuit. So so that issue is coming to a head with the school year just a few weeks away. Uh, we'll be watching it carefully. All right. Another issue this week, you continue to watch kind of the reception that new Boise State President Dr. Marlene Trump is receiving this week. Uh, we found out about an anonymous political cartoon-style postcard uh, that was sent to a number of legislators, specifically prom prominent Democratic legislators, depicting new Boise State President Marlene Trump, members of the State Board of Education, as clowns. But this was an anonymous political mailer. A lot of people are calling distasteful. Um, but what did you find out, and, and what's the response been to this postcard? The governor has even weighed in. It took a while, but the governor did weigh in. So, so to kind of press the reset on this chapter of the Marlene Trump story, uh, the Boise State Diversity Program story, on Monday, uh, several legislators said that they received a, an anonymous mailer. It, it links back to a website, uh, and we explain all this at, yeah. at, at idohatnews.org. The cartoon uh, image on one side of the uh, of the postcard depicts Marlene Trump in clown attire, and it depicts members of the State Board of Education with either clown noses or clown hats or clown makeup, yeah. uh, calling the diversity programs at Boise State, quote unquote, clown world, and saying that the cost to taxpayers is $425,000 plus student victimization. The $425,000 is uh, pretty clearly a reference to Marlene's, Marlene Trump's salary as Boise State president. You can see both sides of the postcard because I, uh, I ran photos of both on my story that ran on Monday. 
legislators were very upset. Uh, some of the legislators who received it uh, were very upset about it. Even to the point of, I think, alerting authorities. Yes. Um, because there's, and there was some more incendiary language than you've mentioned, and you can find that uh, in your story. But uh, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, you know, you know, very uh, pointed remarks about diversity on campus. Uh, you know, you can see the quotes for, for yourself. Um, what then unfolded was a lot of reaction to the postcard and a lot of pushback, uh, not just directed at who, at the, the postcard itself, but at Governor Little. Um, on Monday, the governor issued no statement on this, uh, on this postcard. On Tuesday, the governor's office issued no um, comment on this mailer. The explanation that we got from the governor's office was that the, that uh, Little was out of state and was not was. available for a comment. And and yes, he was out of state. But um, as near as I could tell, he was out of state on business. That's what the governor's office said. I think I saw a picture of him maybe at the Pentagon. But yes, yeah, go yeah. ahead. Presumably within phone range. Presumably within cell phone range. Uh, not backpacking in, in the Frank. <laughs> yeah. Not uh, not you know doing a you know a backcountry tour of you know. Nothing business related that uh, left him unreachable. But so there was a lot of pushback about where is the governor on this. Uh, Bob Custer, the former president of Boise State, said, "Hey, it's time for the governor to speak out on diversity issues on campus," um, which he finally did on Wednesday afternoon in this e-newsletter that the governor sends out on a monthly basis. And you had to dig into the e-newsletter to find his response because it was underneath um, a mention of rules reform, a mention of the state's uh, balanced budget, you know, hailing the state's balanced budget, which, by the way, is required by the Constitution. Yeah, yeah. So it's not like it's... They like do it big, every year. <laughs> yeah, I mean. they literally do this every year. And they're required to. <laughs> yes. Uh, so... At any rate, you had to kind of dig, and you found his uh, his statement saying that the uh, cartoon was distasteful, uh, and you know, but also saying that you know, you know there is a right to free speech. Protected so, speech. So yeah. it was a it was a statement that didn't exactly uh, satisfy everybody, um, and you can see the statement in full. Uh, so I've got multiple stories on this uh, on this topic. The, the breaking story from Monday, sort of the reaction to the governor's silence, the governor's statement. So if you dig into idahoednews.org, you'll get entirely caught up on this issue. But this issue is not going away. I, again, Twin Falls and our friends at the Times News um, House Republican leadership were in Twin Falls on Wednesday night. The uh, diversity issue came up, not surprisingly. And Mike Moyle, the House Majority Leader, said that uh, you can expect legislation uh, addressing this issue in 2020. He didn't um, go into detail about what that bill might look like. And I, we were talking about it before we uh, pressed the record button. About what they could even do. What, what, what yeah. it would do and what it would look like. I, I don't know. Uh, but another sign that this issue is really not going to go away. Uh, we've said it before on this podcast that this is something that's going to linger and, uh, and and play into the 2020 legislative session. This is just uh, further confirmation that we're going to be dealing with this issue for a while. So and, we'll, we'll keep you yeah. apprised. And this was really touched off and related to that letter that Representative Barbara E. Hart and the, I want to say, 28 House Republicans signed, uh, basically given to Dr. Trump on her first week on the job at Boise State, talking about 
their concerns with these diversity and inclusivity type programs. And obviously, we view it as, you know, I think like we said last week, pick your metaphor, a brushback pitch or a shot across the bow. But all of these programs predate Dr. Trump's presidency, which is still only, what, 26 days old as we mm -hmm. record yeah. this. And so a little unfair to target her. Obviously, she did not create these programs. They were well established in some cases for years uh, before she arrived on campus. But I think that some of the Republicans in the House are looking to maybe test her and, and maybe uh, a little bit of saber rattling here to throw another metaphor out there uh, and just see how she might respond and what kind of reception that they're going to get. But obviously predates Dr. Trump's 26-day-old presidency, a little unfair uh, in that regard. Um, and, but we'll continue to watch where this and, goes. And the, and the debate over the programs. I mean, let's set aside the postcards sure. for, for a second. But let's maybe talk more about the debate over the programs and how a how the legislature might weigh in on the programs themselves. A couple of things we have, we have in two. the dynamics of this that I find really interesting. Yeah. We've already written about how eight of the 15 members of the House Education Committee signed that eHeart letter. And eHeart sits on the House Education Committee. So you've got critical mass on that committee of folks who are expressing concerns with these diversity and inclusion programs. But look who on didn't. House education. Yeah, but look who didn't sign it. Yeah, that's where I'm going, is that you look at uh, the eight House Republicans on the Joint Finance Appropriations Committee. None of them signed this letter. House so Speaker Scott Bedke did not sign the did letter. Did not sign the letter, but when he was at the... The, the town hall meeting that House uh, Republicans had in Twin Falls on Wednesday, he expressed some concerns with the diversity programs, but he didn't sign the letter. You, you, but when you think about House appropriations folks, when you think about the folks on JPAC, and you think about is the legislature going to try to do a pushback involving funding? Do they try to do something with legislative intent language attached to uh, a budget bill? I don't know if there's much sentiment, much uh, support for that idea on uh, on the Appropriations Committee. At least we're not seeing it at this point. So that, that may or may not come to fruition. Based on just what we saw from the letter, I don't know if there's much interest in that. And go back to Governor Little just really quickly on this. Um, Melissa Davlin from uh, Idaho Reports tweeted this out very quickly after Little's statement. She pointed out, you know, astutely that his statement said nothing about eHeart's letter and nothing about the overall issue of right. diversity programs on campus. So we really don't know where little might come down on legislation or budget intent language or anything that might make its way to to his desk. We don't really know where he is on this issue. So, you know, but, uh, yeah, and we're, we're going to be writing about this for months and months and months. And it's like we talked about, they're only... At least as far as the letter goes, only targeting certain diversity and inclusivity type programs, uh, saying that they're not, you know, for everyone. But, you know, nothing in the letter about, oh, we need to disband the Young Republicans Club because not everyone can do that or disband the Future Farmers of America or disband the Boise State football team because not everyone can play on it. So they obviously only targeted certain initiatives. Um, so it'll be interesting to see what comes of this um, and, and where it goes. but uh, And it's a little bit misleading to suggest that this is a, just a Boise State issue. I mean, the, right. the, the movement towards diversity programs, inclusion programs, is hardly unique to Boise State University. It's, it's, it's a national trend on higher education campuses. It's, a, it's been seen by a lot of folks in the higher education community as a, as a need nationally. 
And well, we talked about the sixty percent goal and, and yes. how Idaho needs to attract more students and support more students who have not gone to school, and that includes economically disadvantaged students, minority students, students whose parents and brothers and sisters haven't gone to college. And this is the top goal for the state of Idaho, to have the 60% goal, and it's a population goal about having 60% of our young adults have some sort of post-secondary education, including um, a a technical, a career technical certificate. But in order to make any progress on what we consider our top education goal, we need to get more students uh, and more people in these higher education programs, in these CTE programs, in these certificate type programs. Mm And, uh, boy, I don't know. So we'll see where this goes, huh? Yeah. yeah. Let's shift gears, sort of, because, uh, and we'll shift back before this uh, yeah. podcast is over. Oh, yeah. um, you sat down with Debbie Critchfield, who is the new president of the State Board of Education, uh, did a profile that you can read. You can all read at idahoednews.org. Give us a quick sense of the profile and what you heard from from her, and we're, we're going to hear from her here in just a, a couple of minutes because you've got a uh, a segment that you recorded with her when you interviewed her a few weeks uh, a few days ago. Well, I, I really enjoyed uh, writing this profile, and I got to say, she sat down with me for more than an hour uh, about a week ago, and we talked about the top issues uh, facing education in the state of Idaho, both at the K twelve level and at the higher ed level. But really, um, I think what's kind of emerging is that Debbie Critchfield, the new president of the State Board of Education, is absolutely on the ascendancy, and she's sort of ushering in a new generation of leadership. Uh, she's young enough to be the daughter, or perhaps even the granddaughter, of some legislators or other members of the State Board of Education. Uh, she was promoted. She was elected president of the State Board in April. Then in May, Governor Brad Little named her co-chair of his education task force. And I guess the thing that I've noticed about her, and I've known her for years, she's not new to the state board, just new president, but I guess the thing that I've noticed about her is in this short amount of time this year since becoming president, she's really shown a willingness to face the tough issues that some other folks maybe are choosing not to comment on. Mm-hmm. And um, the Public Charter School Commission executive session is is one example that we yeah. both talked about. Yeah, let, let, you know, we, I want to get into that, and I want to talk a little bit more about what we're hearing from her and what we're seeing from her on some current issues. But let's first hear from her directly. Right? Yeah, yeah, I want to thank uh, Debbie Critchfield for taking the time and being our guest on the podcast this week. But we have about a seven and a half minute or so uh, clip with a couple of questions that I've asked her talking about education, and so we'll cue that up right now, and then we'll see you on the other side. All right, so I want to thank my guest, uh, State Board of Education President Debbie Critchfield is in the office today joining us on the podcast. Uh, President Critchfield, thanks so much uh, for coming on. Really appreciate it. Thanks for making some time. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Just by way of introduction, you and I both uh, came fresh off a task force subcommittee meeting this afternoon, and you are the co-chair of Governor Little's new K-12 education task force, Our Kids, Idaho's Future. But kind of give our listeners an update about what the task force has done thus far this summer, and then really where I want to go is, what has the governor asked you guys to do before the next legislative session? 
As you know, Clark, and, and probably others know, the full committee, um, task force committee, has met twice now. And the subcommittees, which we have four subcommittees, um, are on their second round of meetings. The first meeting, that kind of introduction, uh, where are we, what are we doing, meeting uh, focused on what the governor has asked us to do, which is look at um, recommendations around literacy and college and career readiness, right. which I think are two very critical areas in the state. We've had a lot of conversations. We've had significant um, funding and investments statewide on that. We hear discussions, really literacy takes in all of that, right. and that readiness um, aspect is important. So those were the two things. The first round of subcommittee meetings, I think were um, more informational for um, committee members. Where are we? What is the, the current state of whatever that subcommittee was? What does that look like as a committee member? What do you think you need? Uh, to, to process um, and to think critically about some of these things. So now we're on our second round of um, subcommittee meetings and we're, we're starting to hone in on some of those um, more focused, well, what do you think a recommendation would look like coming from the subcommittee? And then I think the second um, full task force meeting that we had at CSI, oh, I don't know, a couple weeks ago. July 1st maybe? Yeah, July 1st, it's all a blur. Yeah. Um, Anyhow, we really had a great conversation about accountability. And that has been um, a common thread throughout all of the subcommittees, all of the main task force meetings. What does account accountability look like? What does it need to look like? What do we have now? And what are the expectations um, for stakeholders, which includes students and parents? Yeah. And so we, you talked a little bit about it, but the governor has essentially asked the task force to focus on two, two kind of big ideas. That's the early literacy like you talked about, uh, and it's going on. It's, mm -hmm. it's higher ed. It's our pathways to higher education. And so things are going to start happening fairly quickly between now and the fall, now and Thanksgiving, now in the legislative session. And so what might we expect? Could it be a handful of recommendations on how we enact policy to reach those goals or, or what might happen going forward? I guess uh, if we had our crystal ball out, yeah, it, would, right? it would probably be a furry or a, a blurry um, <laughs> picture. But um, I, I don't know. Yeah. And uh, we've asked the, the subcommittees to, to do the hard work of refining what those recommendations are. When we get to the full uh, task, we don't want to have a laundry list from each of the subcommittees. Well, we had 10 really awesome ideas. Okay, which of the 10 for this? Because then you're looking at this completely unmanageable list of things. However, we've also asked that the subcommittees not throw away their homework, so to speak, because there could be a lot of great ideas that don't cost money, sure. that don't take um, legislative action. For example, we heard a couple of things today on the teacher pipeline that the State Board of Education could do because we are trustees of the universities. Oh, well, we could do that without even having to go through this process. That's just a great idea. And so we've asked people to you know, hang on to that. Um, but at the same time, realize that when you bring an idea forward for the full committee to really analyze and um, scrutinize, that you have gone through that process with your subcommittees to say, of all the things that we talked about, and we talked about a lot of great things, these two really rose to the top. This is the cream of the crop. We think that here's the silver bullet. We're not going to get those, but we hope so, um, for literacy and, and college and career. Sure. And that kind of leads me to something that um, my co-host Kevin Richard and I often talk about 
around the office these days, which is, it, it almost seems to me like we're at a crossroads with education from a policy standpoint in Idaho. And, and I say that for a couple of reasons. Uh, we have a new governor, first-year governor, Brad Little. You're the new president of the State Board of Education. Uh, we have the task force. Uh, we will likely have two new State Board of Education members, perhaps this summer. We have, I think, four new presidents of our yes. institutions of higher education. Kind of where does that leave us? And as someone right in the middle of that policymaking mix, what do you focus on or, or, or how do you focus um, at this time and, and kind of chart a path forward? I don't know about the focus. We're still trying to get our eyes from not circling all over. But I want to answer the, the first question, sure. which was where, where does that leave us? I think it leaves us in a great place. We have one system, and we are the envy of many states, almost nearly every state. There's only one other, one other state in the U.S. that has um, the ability to guide a process from start to finish, uh, you know, pre-K to, to postgraduate. And we've got four new presidents that we can say, look, here are the goals. This, this is where we want students to be. We have board members that are coming on with enthusiasm and uh, perspectives that, that we can really tap into. Um, we have got a governor who has come strong right out of the gate. Hey, we want to put another $13 million in, into literacy. And, you know, he's looking at raising the, the beginning teacher salary. We know that, you know, beyond saying education is a priority that right from the start um, that he's come in and, and, you know, wants that to be a real focus of, of his um, time. And so we've got a lot of moving parts and a lot of... Um, excitement i feel like it's excitement and we added to that this last year new folks into our legislature who are also passionate about education and so it's it's a perfect storm sometimes we use that word perfect storm in, in with a negative connotation but in in this regard i feel like it's a perfect storm of people who are ready and willing to put in the time and the effort to say what's going to work here in idaho um, what has or hasn't been working in the past. You know, we talk about this evolution in, in education. And maybe something was successful and worked really well five years ago, but doesn't now. Okay, well, let's take a look at that. Do we need to remove it? Do we need to get rid of it? That's the other side of this is what do we already have in place aside from the task force that we can really analyze um, get the good stuff out of it. If we need to get rid of it or change it, let's get it done. I want to thank my guest, Debbie Critchfield, President of the State Board of Education, for joining us on the podcast today. Always a lot of fun. And, you know, the way Kevin and I look at it is really the next one, two, five years are going to be critical for education because of, like you said, these opportunities and, and where we're at with these crossroads. Uh, any final thoughts before I let you go, President Critchfield? Well, with that statement, you make me even more worried. <laughs> no, it, it's a it's a it's a burden, um, and I mean that in, in a positive way. There are other board members and um, others that are involved in education that take this very seriously. That it's not a cliche to say that we care about the students of Idaho. My kids were students of Idaho. I care that the students that are in now uh, are successful and, and have all these great outcomes and. And we, we've got a, a state that it's in a position that's growing. Our economy is doing well. Um, we've got a system to provide um, the framework to, to achieve the goals that we want. So it's an exciting time. All right, so there you have it. I want to thank State Board of Education President Debbie Critchfield for, for joining us on the show this week and, and for sharing a few words on the podcast. But uh, I, I think it's interesting, and I do really think that Idaho is at a crossroads at education right now. But, yeah, and... and so let's talk about that role and let's talk about what, what 
what we've seen and what we've heard from Debbie Critchfield just in these past two weeks, and I don't want to turn two weeks into a trend. Sure. But really, I was struck by the guest opinion that Critchfield sent out about a week and a half ago about the Charter Commission and that, that controversial meeting uh, that we started the podcast talking about. She, she said, said, I'm going to make no apologies for this. I, I am going to make no excuses for a meeting that I consider was demeaning and hurtful. Uh, she talked about the need for the Charter Commission to uh, get some training, not just about the open meetings law, but training about how to have sensitive conversations about student performance. I mean, she called out the Charter Commission in very strong terms. One of the first person, one of the first people outside of the charter community to do so. Right. So I, I found those comments to be extremely uh, telling. Uh, and now let's you know talk about this week, and let's talk again about the uh, the cartoon and talk about the postcards. On a day when Governor Little made no comment about the postcards, on a day when State Superintendent Sherry Ibarra, who is depicted on the postcards because she's a member of the State Board of Education, on a day when Sherry Ibarra made no comment about the postcards, Debbie Critchfield weighed in and was very pointed about it. She said that this is a distraction, that this is unfair to, to, to Dr. Trump and unfair to all of us who are working on uh, trying to help student and student opportunities. I mean, as I read her statement, you could tell that she was very personally upset about this. I mean, she made no attempt to hide that she was ticked off about the postcards, maybe ticked off because she too was depicted on the postcards, but took, uh, you know, but made very clear that, uh, you know, she felt like the, the, car, the cartoon and the postcards and the content were a distraction. Uh, I think she viewed it as a cheap shot uh, directed at the state board and the universities. So in, in a vacuum, in a, in a vacuum of you know, where state leadership said nothing about the topic, she called BS. It was very mm -hmm. clear that yeah. she, was, she considered the postcard to be completely out of line, completely inappropriate, and completely unfair. And she did not mince any words. Well, and let's be clear about Debbie Critchfield's background. She is a longtime... Uh, been active in the Republican Party in the Minnie-Kaja area, uh, and she's been appointed by Governor Otter twice to the State Board of Education and Governor Little, that's two Republican governors, uh, to the task force. And so let's be clear that she's um, active in Republican po politics and a member of the Republican Party yeah. and a mm -hmm. prominent one. But uh, yeah, I mean, I, I also right after she was named president, she called on the colleges and universities to hold the line on tuition increases and said yeah. these need to happen way less frequently. And so one thing I'm going to watch over the next year, this may be a case of a, of a leader emerging, a new, like I said, a new generation of leadership, but a, a new leader emerging um, on the education front. And so that's something that I'll yeah. watch over the next year. Um, she, she's definitely showing that she's willing to start some some difficult conversations. I mean, if you talk about tuition and fees and trying to balance tuition and fee increases against state funding, that is a very uncomfortable topic for just about everybody yeah. involved in that topic, whether you're a university president or a legislator. That's an awkward public policy conversation to have, and she's not backing away from it. She's not been afraid to back away from speaking out about uh, about how the Charter Commission does its, uh, does its work and how it uh, talks about schools. So by no means am I suggesting that she's, you know, a, you know, going to usurp the governor. No, uh, but she is not going to be afraid to to speak her mind on these issues. And you know, I, 
so I think the profile and what you heard from her today is a good opportunity to kind of get to know her a little bit better because uh, she's going to play a prominent role in, in the months and years to come. And I'd encourage you to head to the homepage, IdahoEdNews.org, and check out our, our long interview and our feature with Debbie Critchfield. Also calling for changes to how the State Board of Education approaches its meetings and business saying that she and other members of the board feel like the meetings have become too transactional. So if you want to find out a little bit more about her plan and how she might uh, change the direction for the state board a little bit, uh, check out that story. But uh, real quickly, I want to move ahead to next week because uh, things aren't going to slow down at all for us, Kevin. In fact, next week may be a little bit busier even than this week. What do you think? Yeah, in in some ways, the, the end of July, beginning of August is sort of the transition to the start of the school year, and it begins... Next week, the uh, Idaho School Administrators Association has its annual meeting in Boise. Uh, we'll be covering that. Governor Little is scheduled to speak at that. He's also scheduled to speak to the uh, Boise Metro Chamber of Commerce. We'll, we'll probably be, be there both days. We will be there for both of those uh, both of those speeches. We'll be uh, listening to see what he has to say about a lot of education topics, uh, including the topics that we've talked about today. You are working on a an update on the teacher evaluations. We've got a new set of numbers. We've got on new those. data from the state. Got so, some interviews I completed. You're working on a big profile about the another new college president who we haven't talked as much about in his first month. But you uh, have already sat down with University of Idaho President yeah, Scott Green. And, and this week, you know, I think we talked about it on the podcast last week because I had spoken to to uh, University of Idaho President Scott Green at that time. We were going to run the story this week. It got overtaken by events you know, that we've yeah. already talked about here. I do promise that we will get the Scott Green profile published next week, uh, get a sense of what he is hoping to do in Moscow and how he's hoping to build on his own experience as an Idaho native and a, an alum. So I, I spoke to him at length. I've spoken to some other folks about what they're hoping to see. So we will drop that profile next week. In addition to anything else that comes along, and if this week is like uh, you know, any indication, there will be stuff coming along. Oh, of course. Well, thanks for bearing this with us this week. Um, thanks to State Board President Debbie Critchfield for being our guest on the podcast this week. Uh, really appreciate it. And uh, let us know what you think. We, we like having guests on, and, and is that something you guys think is cool for the podcast? Or would you rather have us keep it a little shorter and just have us kind of bat the issues back and forth? Kind of let us know what you think. We're happy to have guests on and record extra little segments like this if, if you like it, if you find it useful. But uh, reach out on Twitter or drop us an email and let us know. But as always, thanks so much for joining us on the Extra Credit Podcast. We have a lot of fun breaking down this ever-complicated intersection of education politics education policy. I'm Clark. I'm Kevin. Have a good week.